Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, Episode 7 on Hamblain the Great, Part 1 by Christopher Marlowe. From the pre-record, getting the sense that once again, this is not to the tastes of the panel. So why don't we just first go around the group and talk about what we liked or didn't like about, well, just give our relationship. Let's give our relationship to Christopher Marlowe. Greg? Ah, oh, well, uh, I know Marlowe. I don't, didn't know this play. Like, I knew of Marlowe. I semi-enjoyed his version of Faustus. Um, I think I might have read one of his others, but I don't remember which one. I definitely knew nothing about Timberlane. Um, so this was a whole new experience for me, one which will never be repeated. Not even <laughs> to read the second part? Probably not, to be honest. Well then, may maybe by the end of this episode you will have a new perspective on it. But I'll hate it further. <laughs> Sophie? Um, I'm just at the moment, so overjoyed to be called a panel. Oh, <laughs> we're a panel, it's so official. Um, but yeah, the my original uh, relationship with Tamburlaine is um, I subscribed to Ted Ed on YouTube and um, there was actually like a 10 minute episode of, he was a historical figure, okay? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. and. I was like, I could have sworn this, uh, I'd heard that name before. So I, that's the only relationship I had of Tamburlaine before reading this play. I had seen a 10 minute clip from Ted Ed about the bullet points of the real historical figure's life that was based on this, that, was, that this play was based off of. This is Timor? The Timor, Napoleon. the lame. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's all I mean. Did you have any relationship to Christopher Marlowe? Um, well, in one of our um, other things, you made us read Faustus. Ah, yes, in the book club. I had us all read Dr. Faustus. Did you like that one? Did you view that as a step up or a step down from Tambling the Great Part One? I mean, I will say that Faustus, the character, was an absolute limp dick um, who absolutely did not use his uh contract yes. with Mephistopheles not even close to the you know kind of wasted the, the 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 use of the demon just anywhere near what he could have done so that was a very disappointing thing to read um and in that sense i suppose this was also a disappointing read as well but in a different way the the works of um, Christopher Marlowe, they have a certain level of notoriety, or at least a certain level of respect among people who like English literature. And I'm getting the sense that when we go and actually read Christopher Marlowe, it requires some getting used to before we can pluck out what is good about them. That's perhaps a polite way of putting it, yeah. Probably, maybe. 
Maybe it is unfortunate that he died when he was 27, so he did not have the time for his artwork to mature beyond this. <laughs> One of the um, old works of criticism talking about his work says, these are the works of a master hand untrained. That seems to be a way of putting it, a polite way of putting it. When it comes to my relationship with Tamburlaine and Christopher Marlowe, like most people, I hear about Christopher Marlowe in relation to Shakespeare. I hear that Shakespeare was somewhat inspired by Christopher Marlowe. I heard once, you know, years ago, the first time I came into contact with Christopher Marlowe was when I was like 15. And I was really interested in the devil. And so I was looking up all these various things about the devil in literature. And one of them was Faust by Goethe. And uh, when I looked in my school's library, I was very annoyed and very angry that they only had Dr. Faustus by some guy called Christopher Marlowe. I didn't read it back then. Years later, I decided to get back into Christopher Marlowe. I'd heard he was good in his own right. And so I bought a complete collection of his work, which is far shorter than William Shakespeare's complete works. William Shakespeare, 37 plays. Christopher Marlowe, thankfully he died young. Only about seven <laughs> plays. Only about seven plays. I got about, I read The Jew of Malta. I, I read Dido and Aeneas. I read Tambling the Great Part One. And then I stopped for reasons that you two have imply that these and i have as i have said these plays require you to have a certain attitude towards them which i did not have the time and also i as sophie suggested i do have a shakespeare book club where we go through shakespeare and his compatriots work from the time period and we did Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus there. I probably should introduce the concept of this podcast at this point. In uh, this podcast... I think by this point people know it's a podcast about Shakespeare? <laughs> at this point they know it's a podcast about Shakespeare, but the basic idea is... The idea... I mean, originally this podcast was called Shakespeare Play-by-Play, Play, which was meant... Which was a, I was very proud of myself for coming up with that title. But unfortunately, before I could post the first episode, someone swiped that name. So this is not Shakespeare play-by-play. Play. This is Shakespeare and Pow. This is a podcast where we go through Shakespeare's plays in chronological order. If that is the case, you might be asking, why are we doing Christopher Marlowe? Well, because we like to see the broader Elizabethan Tudor context of the time, to see other writers at the time. People get too focused on Shakespeare. They start thinking that Shakespeare was uh, amazing, brilliant, but they don't see that he was interacting with other writers. And oh, one of the main... Come on, this is only making him look better. Yes. <laughs> I will put it like this. We, the reason why we're doing this, Townblend the Great Part 1, is because some suggest that Henry VI, the Henry VI plays are a response to this one. I was reading one article 
where it's like Shakespeare was doing that thing where you don't just copy what the other person's doing. You see what they are doing and you say, ah, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to make one element the absolute opposite. So Tamblyn the Great, part one, is about a strong king, a massively powerful king who nothing can stop. Henry VI is about a very weak king who is absolutely pushed around by events. <laughs> is this making you see the Henry VI plays in, well, the, the one that we have done? Are, are you seeing, you didn't like that play. Sophie, you also didn't like that play. I like that play quite a bit. Are either of you reassessing Henry VI Part Two? Not. Really. I actually liked Henry VI Part Two. Okay, no, I didn't like. I didn't hate it. I think. I actually thought it was a really good tragedy. It was. It was. I or at least I liked Henry the character in that situation because he was, you know, the perfect tra tragedy character that could have been written in that situation. But um. Yeah, no, I don't like Tamblaine at all. As a character or as a play? Uh, a bit of both. Like, like character, a character, I suppose, like, you could sort of see him, like, as very charismatic. Um, but it, his charisma seem, feels very unearned. And because of that almost, and actually, no, it's not even because of that, but, but for other reasons also, the, pay, the play is just generally unsatisfying. But we'll get into that, I suppose, in a bit, in a second, in a moment. Greg, your opinion about how has this made you reassess or not reassess Henry it, the Sixth? It really hasn't made me reassess. I'll I'll be interested when we get to Henry the Sixth part, um, part one. We three. we read part two, didn't we? We read part two. We're going to do part yeah, three. Yeah, a uh, part one apparently. He wrote with Marlowe, a lot of people believe. So that might be interesting. And also, I think people suggest that the Jack Cade rebellion scenes in part two were done by Marlowe. Yeah, which still I don't see the link. Um, perhaps a little bit in the language, but in, in terms yeah, Jack of... Jack Cade was useless. What the, what, I, don't, I just did not understand what the point of his existence it was like it was a different story. Like, why was he there? My I'd boy. say that there is a value in having a sprawling, lots of different things happening narrative. When, especially when you look at this one, where there is very much one central character doing one thing over and over and over again. Tamburlaine is a big conqueror, and he's killing a lot of Middle Eastern potentates. And that is all the story is. I prefer the Henry the Sixth. Here's a lot of unrelated things happening all at once. Yeah, yeah, I do prefer the story of Henry the Sixth to this. I'm not saying Henry the Sixth is good, but it is better than this. You are desperate to say no. I am never going to suggest that Henry the Sixth is good. Don't get no, me wrong. No, I'm happy. I'm happy to say it's good in comparison to this. Yeah, <laughs> just don't make me say it's good in comparison to say any of the Henry the Fourths. On the on the topic of um, Henry the Sixth, I we know like the mo one of the most famous early comments about Shakespeare is that he is an upstart crow, a writer something like a writer's something in a player's hide or something, a player's heart in a writer's hide or something like that. Famously said by Robert Greene, 
Robert Greene, a man most famous for insulting people more successful than he was. Now, I want you to take a guess as to what Robert Greene thought of Christopher Marlowe. Do you think he liked Christopher Marlowe? Do you think he didn't like Christopher Marlowe? What was the quote? A player's heart in a writer's hide? You know, it's like a writer, yeah, player's heart in a writer's hide. It was a, it was a, he was sort of parodying a line in Henry VI, part three. In which case, I, I would probably suspect he wouldn't like Marlowe because Marlowe very much has no interest in plays. <laughs> yes. He has an interest in monologues, but I'm not sure he has an interest in plays. <laughs> yeah, so I'm agree. assuming... Do you want to take a guess? Yeah, I'm just going to assume that uh, this man was a salty boy. He lives a salty boy. Just a very salty, unhappy man. Yes, he does claim, like, he's he sort of... To get this joke, you sort of need to understand a pun on Mahalo's name. But he says, Green said he would prefer to be Diogenes's ass rather than one of Merlin's race. And Merlin is a pun on Marlin, which was a version of Marlowe's name. So it is, so this, I mean, I'd say that Rob, I'm getting a lot of these quotes from a essay called Marlowe and the English Literary Scene by James P. Bednar. I don't know if that's how to pronounce the guy's name, but yeah, but Robert Greene, he doesn't seem to have liked Marlowe. He doesn't seem, he seems to have been a bit late in understanding that the theatre was a valid form of art. I think if all we had was Marlowe, it would be fair to assume that there was nothing legitimate about theatre. I, hmm, aha, maybe, maybe. I'd say that this is, uh, there would certainly be a lot of raw material for someone else to whip into something better. Maybe. Like, as I said, this is only the second mile I've read, but so far it's uh, the impression I've gotten is, yeah, Milo can do adaptations of Faust. (laughs) And and look, to be fair, we we probably should mention that when Tamburlaine came out, it was actually extremely popular for a couple of years. Like, apparently it got um, performed dozens of times during a five-year period before dropping off into obscurity. Um, It got published multiple times in different formats. Uh, The reason why we have a part two is because part one was so popular. Uh, This was a play that at the time caused quite a stir. It just, by 1600, no one really cared that much anymore. Yes, and it's one of those things where part of the thing I like to do with this podcast is to try to avoid um, talking about future obscurity as being a sign of something being a lesser play. Not in the sort of sense where you'll find a lot of people talking about when when we find like sexism, racism, morally defect things in these plays. People will just say, "Oh, it's of its time." Oh, you can't criticize it for being of its time. Oh, this was just how things were at the time. And I would just like to extend that to aesthetic values, where people will say, oh, look at this. People liked it at the time, but now it's terrible. And they'll find no contradiction between... I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that it fell out of favour within, like, five years. That's like how Game of Thrones just disappeared after the final season. (laughs) Like, this is something that everyone loved, and then for some reason, 
everyone wanted nothing to do with anymore. And I'm I'm going to put it out there. I think one of the reasons why it went out of fashion so quickly was because Shakespeare changed things up a lot. That Shakespeare started with stuff, you know, inspired by Marlowe, but a couple of years later he produces something like Romeo and Juliet, which is a whole new different way of looking at theatre. I mean, some of this might be because this was so popular and you had so many people, you know, imitating it. So, in fact, Robert Greene, he decided to write a play which was essentially just this play. He even took some of the lines from this play. So <laughs> it was called Alphonse, where he just essentially did this, uh, but worse. Um, but it was so no popular, so absolutely popular that, you know, first there's imitation. And then the imitations become too much. They become awful. They become, you know, so glutted on the stage. And then you get parody. And Shakespeare parodies this kind of Tamburlaine, bombastic character in The Merchant of Venice. The, the, the Prince of Morocco, that is a Tamburlaine character. He is speaking like Tamburlaine. Let me find it. One of those quotes, it is like, ah, therefore I pray you lead me to the caskets to try my fortune by this scimitar that slew the Sophian, a Persian prince that won three fields of Sultan Suleiman. I would outstare the sternest eyes that look how brave the heart most daring on the earth Pluck the young sucking cubs from the she bear, yea, mock the lion, and he roars for prey to win thee, lady. That is Shakespeare taking the piss out of Tamburlaine. That's fair. That's fair. So I'd say that maybe, you know, the fact that it went into obscurity is maybe has less to do with the work itself and more it being just too influential. Uh. I don't know, because do you know of any other works that were so highly influential that they became unimportant to the genre in in any art or culture? Lord of the Rings. Maybe Frank Herbert's Dune. Re re really? Do, I, I would say that neither of those have disappeared in any way or ever have disappeared in any way. Oh, the difficulty of this question is that you're asking us to remember things that people have forgotten. <laughs> but, but, but you're asking us who at least know a little bit more about theatre yeah and the public eye uh, I, I think, no don't, don't little, say not, not heaps not i know heaps. nothing about theatre don't you put me with you cultured folk uh, uh, all right but yeah I, I i i feel i feel that's a little too defensive of this particular play um like marlo hasn't been forgotten in any way um, yeah. Do you think that that has more to do with? There was a, someone was saying that Shakespeare has is one of the greatest authors, and it's quite a shame for biographers that his life is so boring, and that part of the desire to pretend that Shakespeare was someone else, that actually someone else wrote Shakespeare, is that other people have far more interesting lives than this guy. And you know, Marlowe, he does have a very interesting life. He was a spy, maybe. He was maybe gay in a country where that wasn't really a thing you could do. He was he had did interesting things in his life. Yeah. Yeah, that that might play a role. But yeah, you know, I, I guess my main argument is there is no way that Marlowe would ever have been remembered as the author of Tamburlaine even a couple of decades. In, fa in fact, the, one of the things I read on Wikipedia was that by the mid-1600s, people were forgetting that Tamburlaine was written by Marlowe. 
and we're attributing it to someone else. Mm, that is, that might be the, them showing a bit of respect to Marlowe, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think um, a lot of people today would be able to go, oh, yeah, Marlowe, he was the, um, the writer at the time of Shakespeare. They might be able to say that he wrote Faustus or The Jewel of Malta. Um, but even in terms of productions, Tamburlaine occurred, has been produced so little over the 400 and so years that it has had the chance to. But yeah, we, should we get on to the actual play itself? We should actually yeah. first get on to his biography, because I do like to make this gesture to the idea that I am somewhat historically contextualising these people, even though this never comes up ever again. Uh, yes. he, but, you know, his biography. Let's just give a, a bit of a pause. Christopher Marlowe's biography, and I'm getting most of these details from the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography by Charles Nichol. And again, because I think we're going to return to Christopher Marlowe later on because he was so influential on Shakespeare. They had a bit of a symbiosis in their relationship. So I'm going to talk about his life up until the point he did Tamburlaine. I won't get to his death, which happens a few years later. So he was born in 1564, and like William Shakespeare and like one of our previous subjects, John Webster, and quite a few others, he came from a workman's family. His father was a shoemaker. But like Shakespeare, like Webster, he went to a good grammar school with a very good cultural education, where he went to King's School, Canterbury. And in the library of this school, there were Latin classics as well as all those great European vernacular classics, stuff like the Boccaccio's Decameron, you have Petrarch, you have uh, Chaucer, and of course the Latin stuff like Ovid. And Ovid, uh, Webster quite liked this, he liked this so much that he did, uh, I, that some people think he did, a, well, he actually, he did do a lot of translations of Ovid. Maybe we can do one of his translations later on. Uh, even though I can't see your faces right now, Greg and Sophie, I'm sensing a great look of reluctance on your face at the mere suggestion that we do some of his Ovid translations. You're not wrong. You're not even remotely wrong. Ugh. He went to Cambridge on a scholarship. You know, smart guy, probably. He got his bachelor's in 1584. He was going to get his master's. But uh, this, his masters went more bumpy. He wasn't showing up to class. But that we also have evidence that his spending went up. And so this does imply that the reason why his master he didn't show up to class and why he was spending so much is because he got a well, he got a paying job. He had money. He had a job. Maybe he was doing translations. Maybe he was writing plays. Uh, but he seems or, to be making a living. That we should mention that. Or he had been engaged in affairs on matters touching the benefit of his country. Yes. Maybe he was getting counsel. money from the government <laughs> to be a spy. And, you know, when, it's one of those things where we don't actually have direct evidence that he was a spy. But some of his friends were spies. And also people were saying, oh, maybe he's a Catholic. Oh, he's going up to France to Reims with all those Catholics. Oh, we should be very suspicious of this Catholic. But then the government, the Privy Council just said, oh, no, no, what's he's, we're not going to tell you what he's doing. But it's entirely fine. Don't worry. He's doing lovely things up there. 
which is very suspicious when your friends are spies and you're going up to these people who you shouldn't be talking to. It does seem like he is he is doing some spy shit. I, I like to think that he was just doing translation work or, <laughs> or intelligence. If Shakespeare gets a boring life, Marlowe gets a boring life. Suck it. I'm, I'm saying he was doing it for the spies, but he was just the translator for the spies because you'd have that sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. So, like, he's the code breaker. No, that's still cool. No, I want yeah, like, I want Marla to have a boring I, life. Ian Fleming worked for the spies, but he worked for them like basically as a re- recorder. Like, he had a really boring job as a spy. Yes, okay. when we think of the word spy, we think, oh, sexy, oh, like he's James Bond up there. But no, sort of like that John le Carre kind of spy, where most of your yeah. life is just boring, being in a foreign country Big that you work. don't particularly like. <laughs> and of all the things you know people say about Marlowe, you know there's that famous line about him where apparently he said i despise anyone who does not like tobacco and boys and some people say that you know this is a la- line meant to slander him and maybe we shouldn't believe that line was said by him i'd say that if i was asked what part about Marlowe's life don't you believe i'd say i don't believe he was a spy but apparently there's some good evidence that he's a spy there's good evidence that he was definitely working for the government for some reason. Yeah. And also and some also, textual you... evidence that he liked boys. Yeah, the fact that the that part basically sort of being allowed in that historical context, like have been saying that and not immediately going to jail or whatever. Is, there was something where it was, um, if you actually, that they were somewhat more, ex- they were relative, I won't say they were accepting, but more than you would think they were more tolerating of homosexuality at the time because some, there was a guy called Alan Bray in one of his essays, I think it was something called The Friend in Sodomy or something like that. He pointed <laughs> out that it was, you got the death sentence for sodomy back then, but the number of people who were done for sodomy, you can count them on two hands. Uh, because, and it's one of those things where even those people who, who were you know, condemned for sodomy, who were put in prison, killed for sodomy, that wasn't the thing they were, they weren't just done for sodomy. It was like, you are a traitor, you killed this guy, you betrayed the king, you did all these things, and, and you're a sodomite. It's this thing you sort of tack on at the end. Uh, I, I don't know. I also think part of it is it's in modern scholarship, we try to make up for our couple of centuries of homophobia by making all our literary heroes gay heroes. Because, you know, so many people want to call Shakespeare gay um, because he had a number of works that seemed quite pro-homosexuality. So yeah. I always I always say, you know what? Who cares I mean, what I'd homosexuality say that, was? And I, well, I'd say that um, at the time there was a an acceptable avenue for homosexuality. Well, not the sexual part, but... Uh, Given that, you know, in their time period, male-male friendship was considered potentially higher and deeper than uh, male-female heterosexuality. And I would say that if you just, and yes, of course, expressions of friendship and expressions of uh, sexuality change over time. But I'd say that if you just looked at the emotion between two men who supposedly had highest form of friendship at the time, if you looked at there, the emotional connection there, and you looked at the emotional connection of a gay couple, I'd say that maybe that 
there wouldn't wouldn't be that much difference that maybe in this male male friendship there would be at least a homosexual romantic relationship allowable there possibly oh yeah i guess what we have is we have a lot of suspected interesting aspects of Marlowe compared to no interesting aspects of Shakespeare. Yes. The most interesting thing about him was that he got into a, a street fight and he dodged some taxes. Dodged some taxes. That's he, he, so he hot. Oh, That's yeah, so on. incredible. <laughs> oh, kill me. But yeah. I think the fact he died early helped him, as it does for so many in the 27 Club. Act 1. We begin in Persia with the effeminate, feckless king, Mycetes. I'm not sure the pronunciation of any of these names, but we begin with Mycetes and we begin with news that Tamburlaine is coming to conquer Persia. And I'm, I think I'm going to spoil the structure of this play, but we begin with Mycetes, but he is killed at the end of the second act. Did you think this character, this king, did you think Mycetes and his crew of Persians would be the main antagonists in this piece? Uh, Opening scene, just the opening scene, I thought maybe Tamburlaine was going to be the antagonist? If you look at a lot of the, um, the before 20th century criticism of this play, a lot of it is saying this play is incredibly unstructured. Uh, it's just Tamburlaine doing one thing after another. Yeah, there's no, there's no story arc. So remember, let me find one of the lovely quotes. There is no construction in Tamburlaine. Instead of two plays, we might as well have been 20. If Marlowe could have found it in his heart, to husband his large supply of kings, emperors, soldans, pashas, governors, and viceroys who perished before the scourge of God? Or had he been able to discover empires, provinces, and principalities with which to endow a new race of ruler? The play ends from sheer exhaustion of resources. As Alexander was reduced to weep for another world to conquer, so Tamburlaine might have wept, or there were no more emperors to fill his cages, no more monarchs to increase his royal stud. He does not weep, but what is much better, he dies. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, yeah, this is, uh, it does, I mean, to me at least, it does feel, like, I'm not sure how Mar Marlowe intended people to view um, Tamburlaine. I assume somewhat negatively, which as we'll get to later. But as a structure, this does seem very much like a, a propaganda film. You're writing a proper, you're, you're like an authoritarian government and you want to say how your great and glorious founder got us to this point. And you say, oh, he was brilliant. Oh yes, people were against him, but he knocked them down. Nothing could stop him. He had no flaws. He was so strong. People tried to stop him, they couldn't. It has that, it's, there was a Dan Olson thing where he's saying that propaganda is not good for story structure because good story structure, you generally need to have some threat. 
You need to have some flaw. You need to have some way that your your protagonist is maybe could fail. Propaganda does not allow that. And this Timberlake does really propaganda. No, nothing that was tough for him. Um, any anything yeah. that could have been a threat got written written out of being a threat instantly. It's it's more like that there are things which you think will be threats. Why these characters are saying, "Oh, this man is so small. This Tamblaine, he thinks he's big, but we're going to crush him." But then Tamblaine shows up and crushes them. It's never actually a threat for him. He's never on the back foot. But on a note, did did any of us read the? Uh, it is. It's the printer's notice. Did any of us read the printer's notice to this? Oh, I tried. I gave up. They got this. The one from Richard Jones. Yes, that one. The reason why I bring this up is because he writes, there's this original printer of this play, he writes, I have purposely omitted and left out some fond and frivolous gestures, digressing and, in my poor opinion, far unmeet for the matter, which I thought might seem more tedious unto the wise than any way else to be regarded, though haply they have been of some vain, conceited foundlings greatly gaped at. Now, what he in plain English, he's saying that I removed the funny scenes. He's removing the clowns. He's remo- Do you think, that, does that disappoint you? Do you wish this guy had let us see, let's say, maybe this would have been a better structure if he'd left in the comic relief? I doubt it would have been a better story or a better structure, but it might have had something to interest me. Um... I th- at least it would have been a very different story with like, you know, I suppose another facet to either love or hate or, um, you know, just, just be like morbidly fascinated by. Because this does like awfully have like a Looney Tunes-esque vibe to it. Just like, oh, yeah, we're... Was so cool, and then Tamblaine just smashes with you know with his anvil of funny powerfulness, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm so clever. Watch this, like a and you know convinces the the enemy to join him, kind of thing. So yes, but this idea that this this does seem a bit Looney Tunes. Even Charles Lamb in 1808 said, "I saw this passage with my own eyes." I never believed that it was anything more than a pleasant burlesque of mine ancients. But I assure my readers that it is soberly set down in a play which their ancestors took to be serious. Which is harsh. That is quite mean. We are spending quite a lot of time on the early acts and things generally do speed up as we go along. We're not going to go in this much digressive detail as we go along. You keep telling yourself that. Oh, you, you mean yes. we're not going to spend 50 minutes on the next paragraph? Oh, certainly. Sir. On the next paragraph, yes, and the paragraph after that. But after that paragraph, it will go down exponentially. I was, um, I will comment that it was, um, ow. Oh, I just hit my fucking elbow on a, on a desk. Um, I will mention that it was actually very blessedly short, at least the first, like, acts. At least the first three acts were so incredibly short. I was like, wait, uh, is, am I actually just going to be fine? Am I going to be fine? And then act uh, four and five happened, and those were much longer. And I was like, oh, cool, cool. I may not survive this, but I did. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing at one of my notes. 
Um, what was the question again? I don't think there was a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, 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 it was a statement of the length. All right, we well, what do we need to know? Act one, scene one, we get a king who's scared of Tamburlaine and his brother who thinks he's a moron. Uh, so openly defiant. <laughs> his brother Cosro is openly defi- so, uh, is openly defiant of him. And my CT is like, what we will find in this play is that when Tamburlaine speaks, his words are laws. His words can sway anyone. His words are promises unto the fates. But my CTs, he is so feckless that he will. It's a it's a running. It's sort of a sort of a running joke throughout this that he will say something. And then when things don't turn out his way, he'll say, oh, actually, I meant this. So he'll make his words match whatever happens. So I think the line is, so he's sort of, he's threatened to kill his brother for being so openly defiant. But then one of his advisors says, you know, don't do that. Uh, that you shouldn't kill him for that. But my Mycetes says, I mean it not. For yet I know I might. Yea, live. Yea, live. Mycetes wills it so. And that's basically, a, he's sort of trying to pretend that he meant this. I can't do it, so I'm going to pretend that I will this. It, this is, we, we get a contrast between Mycetes and Tamblaine right up. One of them, his, their words become reality. Mycetes bends to reality. And I think, actually, I will say, though, with this specific character in mind, having the clowns... Um being included might have helped because then you would have seen, you know, just the the foolishness of Mycetes um, <sighs> exacerbated, I guess, or contrasted with the clowns who are just, you know, actual clowns. Um, and then you have, then maybe there would have been like a couple of wise clowns going, Cosro, sir, maybe uh, don't partner with Tamburlaine later just because he seems super sus and Cosro would be like nah no I'm good this is fine this is fine and the clowns everyone all of the clowns said and things were not fine although judging from Marlowe's use of clowns in Dr. Faustus I don't think they would have been that well integrated into the plot in this one ah damn I can dream I can hope but we have Cosro being so annoyed with Mycetes that he just gets a... He, he brings together a band of nobles and says, we're going to usurp Mycetes. We're going to take control of Persia. And, and this will be a running theme in this play. Cosro doesn't really think Tamburlaine is a threat. He, does, he thinks that what matters is, our, uh, is the rebelling people in our own country. Tamburlaine, he has numbers, but he has nothing. He is utterly powerless. It's, this is, uh, in this play, quite a lot of things repeat, and this is the repeating aspect. We see Tamburlaine first up, and, I mean, at least he's, he's bringing with him uh, Egyptian princess called Xenocrate. And yeah, her I can't wait to hear what Sophie thinks about the very in-depth and interesting xenocrity with all her agency and all ah yeah story (laughs) ah yeah i just weep for xenocrity i weep for all the women in this fucking play to be honest but 
even the, the four virgins who are slaughtered and their bodies hoisted up to the walls of Damascus? I believe the term is especially for the, for the virgins that had to go through that. Holy shit. I mean, I, I would say that... I'd say that with this play, I mean, at this point, I mean, putting aside, I mean, yes, Zonocrity is not a very, what we would call an empowered character. She's not that. Um, but I'd, with this play, I'm wondering how Marlowe wants us to view Tamblade. Because the first, you know, we, we meet Tamblade and say, come, lady, let not this appall your thoughts. The jewels and treasure we have taken shall be reserved, and you in better state and if you were arrived in Syria, even in the circle of your father's arms, the mighty sultan of Egyptia. Throughout these, the first scenes, he is shown as being very kind to his prisoners. He is shown, you know, being a fierce warrior, but towards people, he can be generous, magnanimous. He can forgive people. He can give them stuff. He is willing to avoid a fight if he can get you on his side. And yes, this guy is meant to be a pagan. He is meant to be a guy who is violating class distinctions. But in all of his actions, he does seem to be an, a romantic, admirable warrior. And yes, I, I, we have mentioned that he does kill some virgins and hoist them up outside. But I feel that Marlowe wants that to be sort of a twist, that we are on his side for quite a lot of this play. Do, do we feel that we are on his side this early on? No. I, just, I, mean... I, I get the impression immediately that he's an arrogant guy that everyone loves for no reason. I feel that it's sort of like, <laughs> at least for me, I feel that it's sort of that he is, it's, we know he's bad, we know he's awful. But you just sort of say, oh, yes, look at that, how lovely. It's, a, it's sort of like that Breaking Bad sort of thing where you get swept along in this obviously bad guy with this obviously bad guy until you reach a point where you think oh no i shouldn't have been going along with this guy there's a point where the sort of uh, catharsis the sort of um the you're going along with an awful character but then you realize oh he is this awful and i was going along with him oh dear but no i don't get the impression that he's I really felt, even from reading the very beginning, that we were told that Tamburlaine is a barbarian. We were told that uh, Tamburlaine is good-looking and charismatic. I never got the impression he was, though. Like, none of his words make me go, oh, this is a very charismatic person. Yeah, this, yeah. his writing is actually very... He is meant to seem quite um, charismatic, but like his actual writing is like eh, kind of normal. It's like yes, oh you beautiful lady, yeah, you know you. It's like being with me, you would have been totally safe. It's fine, yeah, come with me. And she's like, I, I'm no, I'm okay. Like she doesn't even go. Well, maybe. And then like he woos her a little bit more, and then she finally goes, okay, I'll give you a shot. Um. Like a lot of the battles, her change of heart happens off stage. Mm. Does it though? Does it? Yeah. The, the thing that got me is um, Tashelas, I guess the name is, one of the other prisoners, says, Methinks I see kings kneeling at his feet. And it's just, yeah, you might think that, but I don't know why you think that. I've, I've 
as an audience member, as a reader, have been given no impression this is someone I would kneel to. We get the sense from them that, I mean, he, he, one of the things about this is that Tamburlaine, he keeps on saying, these are my friends, these are my friends. Takeles, you're my friend. Usum Kasane, you're my friend. Um, eventually, he, he turns one of my city's generals, Thedidimas, against my, uh, my city's, and he calls this guy his friend. Now, in the Elizabethan era, the word friend was a bit stronger than it is nowadays. It sort of implied that we are in an unbreakable relationship we are going to help each other. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. But there's nothing vulgar or sexual or even sort of um, groping or money-hungry or mercantile about this. Except in this play, the people he calls friends, these characters, they explicitly say, ah, because I'm with him, he's going to make me a king. Because this guy will help my ambition. This guy will help me rise in the world. So all of Tamburlaine's friends are sort of, established early on as saying that they're only with him because he can help their ambition, which is not a what very I, healthy What I don't understand is I'm not given any impression that, oh, yeah, of course he's going to succeed, so of course I would tie myself to them. It's like we, ju we just have with to... this, I'd say that maybe, maybe it's sort of like how when we now look at early examples of CGI, we think, how did people think this looked real? How did people think this this looked at all realistic or impressive. Where with this one, the, the kind of language that he is using, like apparently this play was an early example of blank verse on the stage. So maybe if, you know, this kind of language, I mean, we've read Shakespeare, we've read a lot of people. Oh, look, no, I, I have no problem with the language. What I have a problem with is the characterization. The language itself is probably the only thing I like about this bloody play. Uh -huh. But the characterization is we are walked in and told, oh, yeah, everyone agrees that Tamburlaine's going to be brilliant. And I'm like, why do we agree that Tamburlaine's going to be brilliant? Why, why do we believe this is the next Alexander? I, I'm not given a reason to believe that Tamburlaine's the next. And opening scene, I'm told that he isn't that great a threat. So... Why, as an audience member, am I to believe all these people saying, oh, no, no, he's got this? I mean, as time goes on, as the play advances, we do see him conquering place after place after place. Yes, but we don't have that shown to start with. I mean, he does bring out all those massive piles of gold just to see, look what I've won, look what I've won. But yeah, that's a, that's a great example too. And he takes off his shepherd's clothes to show his uh, brilliant armour underneath. And it's like, yeah, that's not, that's not really proving to me that you're a king. I mean, it is the sort of showmanship that I'm, you say, why isn't, aren't they showing this at the beginning? Well, it is the beginning. We can't show it yet. So I'm going to show you these showmanship sort of things. And we do actually get told that, you know, he is marching. He is, do, he is called a thief. But, you know, that just I means can't he's a help but compare it to um, things like Julius Caesar, where you you can clearly see who could be possible leaders and who don't who doesn't have what it takes to be a leader. Um, you, you see it in King Lear. I know these are a lot of the older Shakespeare's where he's really got it down pat, but um, yeah, with Shakespeare, you get the impression of the character really quickly from how they speak and what they're saying. And you only get the impression of the character, and I use that very loosely in this because someone tells me 
to have that impression? And I'd, well, I'd say that, let's say, earlier generations of writers were not so much in grasp of this idea of showing and not telling. In, let's say, previous generations, if you tell something strongly enough and bombastically enough, okay, I'll take your word for it. But we didn't let's... see that in Henry the Sixth. It is, yes, yes. I'd say at the beginning, when all the characters are together and talking with each other and we're meant to get the this, this sense of their characters there, that was pretty much telling instead of showing. Mm. Yeah, th 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 yes, this, this was my biggest problem. But yeah, I, I really struggled to... And, and, and it didn't improve. It honestly never improved for me. I never... Tamerlane's words never came across to me as, oh, wow, yeah, this this is a king. This is someone who could convince. Even in the scene, I know I'm skipping ahead, but even in the scene where he, he convinces, in inverted commas, um, the general to give up his army and fight for him, just, I'm not convinced that that was a smart move. Whereas I feel like a lot of the gr good writing and definitely in Shakespeare's writing, when Shakespeare has a character convince another character, you understand why they got convinced. You, you believe that someone could be swayed over by those words. You know, I kind of, I kind of just, okay, I, I agree in that the, um, the character Theramate Damus isn't really given by Tambourine. Um, a reason to really join in with the crowd because fucking, you know, for a very supposedly charismatic character, his words and the way he convinces people is not very charismatic. It's, it's quite, you know, oh, I can play 3D chess, I can play 4D chess. And it's like, no, you're just playing with pieces of paper that just looks suspiciously like chess pieces. You're not doing anything actually that clever. Um, but... Um, if we put in the context of um, Cosro trying to overthrow his, you know, little big brother who is very effeminate and not a good king, like Theridamus, with that context, you could infer that Theridamus has decided, okay, this will be a good man to add to the ranks to ensure Cosro actually wins the game. Marlow had written it that way, that would work. But um, so, I, I'm going to jump. I mean, even if it's not that he's been, even if it's not thinking that um, he's going to bring uh, Tamburlaine over to Cosro, there is the sense that Theridamus is thinking, well, I sh I'm loyal, I'm a loyal guy, but my CD, he doesn't deserve my loyalty. I may as well join a guy who seems like he is worth following. Except for Theridamus... And this is what I mean about the whole, they, they say it even though they don't show it, is that Thridimus uses the line, not Hermes, Prolocuta, oh, I can't say that word, Prolocuta of the gods could use persuasions more pathetical. Um, I, I don't agree. I don't agree that this monologue Tamerlane gives before where he says, oh yeah, I'm going to walk the lofty cliffs and I'm going to be king of all the world. I don't believe that that is persuasion. Like Theridamus sees it. 
When we read these sort of early works of uh, writing and we see Prolocutor of the Gods and stuff like that, I mean, I, I will admit that, yes, I also don't particularly think that what he said is all that convincing. It's sort, it's fact, sort of like later on he says, one with thy words and conquered with thy looks, I yield myself. Oh, man, you're a hot boy. You know what? I would die for your beauty. (laughs) And it actually happens multiple times in this, that people seem to be more convinced by the fact that he's good-looking than anything he says. (laughs) Divine right. When it comes to that, when it comes like his looks, and there there are characters who will give incredibly long descriptions of how he looks, and I'd say that's a very dangerous thing to do on the stage, where you can see the person they're describing. I wonder... Just apparently the guy who was playing Tamblaine, a guy called Edward Allen, apparently he was a really a rather big imposing sort of guy. It's sort of a risk. You're sort of letting people see he doesn't look like that. He's not attractive. He's not massive. He's just a guy. It's a very dangerous game Marlowe is playing. Yeah, He's yeah. just a guy. <laughs> yeah, that, that is my biggest complaint about the whole play, and it comes up really early, is that no charisma from Tamburlaine, no reason for me to believe he so easily persuades people, and yet everyone says he's so persuasive. And that annoys the daylights out of me. That annoys me more than the constant repetition of him wiping out different people. I'd say that perhaps the reason I'm not that annoyed, I mean, I agree with you that I don't particularly buy the way he persuades people, but, you know, I'm sort of of the attitude that I just sort of say, okay, psycho- accurate psychology is not really what these people thought they were going for. Uh, it's just these characters need to act in a certain way. Here's some pretty lines. Now they do. Yeah, but, yeah. You, 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 but by saying that, you're, I guess what you're saying is that Shakespeare was a thousand times better and 10,000 times more ahead of his time because he does it so well. I mean, I'm not saying, well, when you say ahead of his time, I don't particularly view being being good by the stands of another time period as being better. Um, just because Shakespeare manages to be good by our standards does not mean that I think that he is much, much, much better than Christopher Marlowe. Or by uh, but what I'm saying is you're defending Christopher Marlowe by saying this would be accepted at the time. Then how would Shakespeare be viewed at the time? Would they not like Shakespeare because he's so good at writing characters that are persuasive? I'd say there are many reasons to like people, and in some contexts, certain things can be acceptable and certain things cannot be acceptable. Like if you like if you try to read the Bible or any other ancient work that comes from an oral tradition, they repeat themselves a lot. They they will repeat entire paragraphs over and over again. And in those works, that's good. That is something that adds to the style. That's something we like hearing. Whereas if I opened up some work by, you know, a modern novelist and they kept on repeating paragraph after paragraph, I think it doesn't really work right here. Yeah, so the characters having flimsy psychology, that works in some plays. It is an accurate piece of some plays. In other plays, it wouldn't work. So where are are examples of good plays where this sort of um, basically inability to persuade works it, it, it assuming tamburlaine works and we're looking for another example of where it works what would that example be because if you can't find another example you might have to accept that perhaps it doesn't work here actually just look at ancient myths 
and you think, oh, how can this woman think that the, how can this man think that these rocks and swaddling clothes, how can he think that these are his children? How is he persuaded by this? Well, we just don't think about him in those terms. This is, he, he believes that these rocks are his children, he eats his children in that sense. But at uh, least then we don't have him saying, oh, oh yes, I believe these rocks are my children. I mean, he shows by, by eating them. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, I mean, I'd say that the effect is sort of the same. If Theradimus hadn't said, oh, he has persuaded me, if he'd just gone over to his side, I think you'd still have the same problem with this scene. I would have a bit of a problem with it, but I think I have more of a problem with it because Theridamus is specifically pointing out why he's cha he's changing his allegiance. As I said, I like Sophie's idea of how we could use the context more and say, yes, Theridamus is changing sides, not just because Tamburlaine might be persuasive, but also because of the context of his own leader is so unpersuasive and so bad a leader. But we we know specifically that this isn't why Theridamus is changing sides. He's changing sides because Tamburlaine is apparently good with words and is good looking. And maybe, you know, the good looking part, maybe that that would add to it. Like, you know, the, the, there's a thing where people are talking about, you know, modern films. They say, if you read the script, it's awful. But this actor, he brings something to it. Maybe what we're missing is Edward Allen. Maybe if we just see Edward <laughs> Allen, we think, oh, yes, this, oh, yes, I would side with this guy. The reason Tamburlaine only, uh, was only enjoyed over the three years because Edward Allen was amazing. I, I like that. that that's going to be my head cannon now. <laughs> <laughs> my head can cannon is the play sucks, but the production was incredible thanks to the actors. I like that the word headcanon <laughs> is now changing just to mean here's some here's the thing I think about history. That's headcanon. I'd like it if that's what all historians thought they were doing, creating headcanon for history. Well, come on, that that is what all historians are doing. <laughs> Do you hear that historian? Fuck you. <laughs> but I think we should I mean, we've we've been on that sort of thing. I think we should also set up one of the key character traits of uh, Tamburlaine is his monstrous hubris. And it's like he says on page 87, this is a famous line, a line that is so forceful and so good that he, so he says, I hold the fates bound fast in iron chains and with my hand turn fortune's wheel about and sooner shall the sun fall from his sphere than Tamburlaine be slain or overcome. Now- In the next two and a half hours, he is proven right. Yes. <laughs> this line is so good that even Robert Greene, who said, I don't like Marlowe, I think Marlowe's shit, even he copied this line. He put this, he, he just, it's like one of those things where you're trying to avoid the plagiarism detector. He changed it just enough to put it in his own play. So, I mean, I'd say that uh, this, I'd say that, um, I mean, I'd, you have to accept that at least these four lines are better than Hermes as a prolocutor or no, something. There, there, there is like a thousand brilliant lines in this play in terms of the language um i i love a lot of the language in this play it is the thing i hold up as enjoying <laughs> um th th this line where is it um with their weight shall make the mountains quake th that just a small thing that oh I, I like that that's a nice image it's certainly yes this is a 
we've mentioned hubris and how you said how he's proven right here. That's the interesting thing about this play. Like, I don't know whether Marlowe thought he was going to get a sequel. I don't know if he thought he was going to write the second part. But if he'd just gotten this play, this play where a guy is saying, I'm going to conquer the world. Oh, I'm, I'm better than fate. I, I've got the fates bound. You think that this is leading up to him getting defeated. He isn't. He wins. He wins the day. It, it is, he has no comeuppance. It is a very, I mean, just as a structure, you think, well, that's weird. That's sort of experimental. It's sort of weird. It's new. Just having a guy, it's sort of all, it's sort of like, like a, the talented Mr. Ripley. It's like, oh, this guy is killing people. Oh, he's, he's living hedonistically off their life. And, oh, he gets away with it. Oh, I didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you... it's sort of very sexy, isn't it? Oh. Did you think he was going to, did you, at the end of this play at least, did you think he, anything bad was going to happen to him? <laughs> I honestly didn't. By, by the halfway point, I didn't think anything bad was going to happen to him. I thought he was, had plot armor stronger than any plot armor in any story ever before or after. And this was just the story of the rise of an emperor. I mean, uh -oh. when in Act 2, um, Scene 4, when Tambi and Mycetes have a meet-cute, as I have written on my notes, <laughs> um, I was like, okay, you know what, he's, he's gonna, his Tambalane is gonna go all the way to the top. Yep. And I might even enjoy it. Uh, how wrong I mean, I? it's not like you feel anyone else deserves to be at the top instead of Tambalane. It's not like Marlowe offers up any alternatives that you might barrack for. That is quite true. So the thing about the kings in this one, there's not much difference between them. I'd say that I like my CTs the best because at least he has a character. He yeah, has a distinct true. character. He is effeminate. He is cowardly. He is. He is. He almost is. He's almost a Falstaffy kind of character at one point. The other kings, they're just sort of angry. Middle Eastern potentates. That's all they are. Just different flavors of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it there was. Just seeing, you know, the same guy in different skins, just being, yeah, I'm going to do it. And it's like, no, you're not. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, that's correct. Any other comments on Act One, or should we move on to Act Two? Yeah, we didn't actually really talk about much, much about scene two, but you know what? Yeah, let's move on. Act one. Well, Act all two. know in scene two is that he has imprisoned an Egyptian princess. He has he was going to fight Theridimus and his army, but then he turns Theridimus to his side. And that's it. That is literally it. Most of this play is long speeches. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah. It actually doesn't have much substance. It doesn't have much going on, at least until the very, very end. I mean, I'd say that the aesthetics of the long speeches is the thing which people come for. Yeah, yeah. they're there for the big. It's monologue. like saying if you remove the giant, uh, if you remove the CGI dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, what is there? Well, that's what is but, there. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> if you removed all the gunfights from John Wick. There's nothing there. <laughs> yes, I remember one time, like someone was telling me, you must watch um, the Fast and the Furious movies. You must watch the Fast and the Furious movies. So I watched them and I fast forwarded through the car chase scenes and <laughs> I said I didn't like them. Yeah. And they said, that's not how you should watch them. I said, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2. Act 2. Yes. Okay, so on scene 1's notes, I have written Cosro, Menophon, Ortigius, and Sinius basically decide to give Tamburlaine regency because he sounds nice and pretty. Yeah, which is almost like anti the character of Cosro we've, we saw before. It's like, wait, Cosro, I thought you wanted this place to yourself. You've just given up? I think that the <laughs> idea is that he's saying, he's saying, using the word regent, where he's saying that, oh, yes, well, we'll team up with Tamburlaine, but of course he's going to be beneath us. He's just going to be a guy who governs this area for us. And he doesn't quite realise. <laughs> He'll just that... have all the power and get to do all the things, but it'll be our place. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a sort of idea that, you know, at, at this, you know, a mighty empire, you don't actually control all the little places. You, you have people who, are, who have power over these places and you give them orders every once in a while. And it's nice to know that you do have control over these places, at least in theory. What Cosro does not realise is that Tamburlaine will not stop until he has total world domination. Sounds like Cos Cosro is a little bit like the Queen is in Australia. Oh, yes, no, no, I'm I'm still the Queen of Australia. I, ha I have <laughs> no powers whatsoever, but I am the Queen. <laughs> or even for England now these days, I, I don't think the Queen has any power anymore, does she? In the 1970s, isn't the Governor General sort of recall an election or something in Australia? Yeah, but the wasn't because the Queen told him to. It was because the Governor-General has the power when requested by the government. Mm. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's just one of those strange things. that it, the, the Queen could say it, but no one actually has to listen. Yes, and I won... I would, but I'd assume in this context, I'd say that Cosro does think that if he says it, Tamblaine would have to listen. Yes, yes, he, yeah, I believe Cosro thinks that. Such uh, a dumb boy. But yeah, and he was supposed to be the smart one of the bunch. Of a the lot bunch. of characters just turn exceptionally dumb in, around Tamburlaine. It just, I genuinely I thought this would this... make a really good movie so long as Tamburlaine was like an eldritch creature that came like from not Earth. He is not mortal. Oh, that I thought is... maybe if um, Tamburlaine was played by Henry Cavill and everyone like acts smart and they see him and then they just start drooling. Yeah, just but like he didn't seem human. He just looked like a Jedi in a, in a Western setting going, Yes, I am awesome. You will believe me with this hand wave. And it's like, Yes, with this hand wave, we believe you. I mean, I would yeah. say that with at least in the military context, all they, I mean, the thing is that lots of these people say, We, we have more people than you. We, we can defeat you. And in other places, well, well, yes, he does have more people than us, but they're untrained. We have trained soldiers here. We have good equipment. I, I'd say that it's not so absurd, their viewing of the, the martial odds here. It's, it's just that uh, Tamburlaine is an unusually good military general with unusually committed soldiers, that there is a reasonable basis where you can think, oh, I can just send off a garrison to defeat these people. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Tamburlaine... He he can act as he can seem like a uh, like he's on the back foot. He can seem like he's not going to be a threat. All of these people are dumb. Hmm. Every single one of them. 
That's all I really give a shit about. Characterization. At the very least, Mycetes, when Mycetes finally goes out to, to battle. So Mycetes, he's going out to battle Tamblaine. Cosro and Teredemasa, basically, they've both betrayed um, uh, Mycetes. They're saying, we're going to hitch our wagons to Tamblaine. But Mycetes is out on the battlefield and he gives like a very proto-Falstaff sort of thing. He gives this speech where he says, um, Ah, cursed be he that first invented war. They knew not, ah, they knew not, simple men, how those were hit by pelting cannon shots stand staggering like a quivering aspen leaf, feeling the force of Boreas's boisterous blasts. In what a lamentable case were I if nature had not given me wisdom's law. For kings are clouts that every man shoots at, our crown the pin that thousands seek to cleave. And now he gives what seems to be a uh, prediction of Falstaff, discretion is the better part of valor speech. Therefore, in policy, I think it good to hide it, my crown, close, a goodly stratagem, and far from any man that is a fool. So shall not I be known, or if I be, they cannot take away my crown from me. Here will I hide it in a simple hole. And this is a quite a good speech from him. This is his really only good speech in the entire thing. Yep. And then Tanvi's like, hey, isn't that like my crown? And he's he's like, no, that's not, no, it's not, it's my crown. Oh, so yes. I, it's your crown, so I can take it from you, yeah? And he's like, oh, um, no, I'm, no, this is not my crown. This is this is your crown now. So I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. It's my crown. Can you give it to me? Yeah, 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 sure. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, yes. Um, I mean, in this one, he does seem like an idiot, and I think this is a good kind of idiot. My name this is, is like an intentional idiot. Yeah, as it's like, oh, so my CTs, hi, I'm Tamburlaine. My CTs like, oh, 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 you're Tamburlaine. Oh no! All right, see you on the battlefield. Love you. Bye. You stupid. End of this. Tamburlaine gives him back his crown and says, "I'll be back for it later." And then immediately in the next scene, apparently he's killed my CTs and taken the crown again. We don't see mm -hmm. that. Maybe this is one of the clown scenes where that was taken out and there's something missing here. But he does he seems to have killed my CDs and taken back the crown. Um actually this is a really good part where I want to complain about the potential stagecraft of this um of this play where at the very beginning I was like I didn't I don't like I didn't like Tambaline because Tambaline the character and I didn't like Tambaline the play because of the way the play is set up or something along those lines I was definitely not as eloquent as that but like all of the action happens off screen or what happens off stage all of the battles happen off stage um everything that is um you know costume labor prop intensive happens off stage it's it just makes the scene already short scenes so much shorter and um, i'd say that there's sort of a value in this because you know it's it's a very they have a very small stage they can't really show a battle and even if they do have like 10 people walking back and forth over the stage raising their prop spears over each other it will look very unimpressive but there is sort of a thematic or a emotional thing you can get through by those few things you do show, the symbols you have of the battle. Like in I this could... one, what you see is Tamburlaine toying with Mycetes. That's the battle, that's the synecdoche, that's the part for the whole of the battle. So we do. So this is what essentially Tamburlaine is doing to Persia. He is toying with them. There is no threat here. 
he is just sort of playing keep away with a king. Don't think yeah, but so like, much there's that... not even like descriptions of the battle. So it, this actually, in that sense, reminded me of the shrew and how, you know, you have like two people going, oh man, that was so funny. That was so cruel when the husband just threw the, the new wife off her four horse and they were like fighting in the mud. It was like, wow, man. Like they don't even have that. They, which would have justified how many fucking characters there are in this goddamn play there are so many people and they are so unnecessary who yes and when it comes to the number of characters like when we were talking about henry the sixth and we we're saying how many characters are in here and I, and I was saying that well these are re relatively recent history for them they like this history they know all these characters names i don't think that marlowe has the same excuse here i don't think he can expect his audience to know all of these Middle Eastern potentates. Who the hell is Ortigius? What does he do? I don't I know. Just check if I know what the word potentate means. <laughs> the little bit of research I did, because you know I always do some research into the context and um, performance and that sort of thing. From the little bit of research I did into the um, influences, it seems like yeah, most of these characters are straight made up. That Mycetes and Cosro were based on a real two brothers, but then pretty much everyone else were fictional. Okay, that makes it even. I suppose that no one can say, "Oh, that's not a real character." They don't care. They don't know about this 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 era and history. Yeah. Yeah, they they came from two particular histories. Most of the ideas came from. Yeah. Um, Pedro Mesquia's A Miscellany of Several Lessons. And uh, Pe Petrus Perundinus's. Ooh, how do I say that? Vita Magni Tamerlinus. Yeah, which was basically a biography of the original Tamburlaine, but very descriptive about the person himself instead of, like, detailing the events or anything like that. Do, mm, yes, it is. He does seem like an obscure fig. I'd say that one of the reasons why people in the English-speaking word nowadays at all care about Tamburlaine is because of this play. I mean, we talk about how this play isn't that popular anymore. I'd say that the fact that anyone in the English-speaking world knows the name Tamburlaine is because of this play. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, yeah. And it's not even a good one, so I feel bad for Tamburlaine, or Mr. Tamur, or whatever his historical name is. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, our, we're only just... Well, I say we... Um, Eurocentric education still doesn't cover much of the history of the Middle East, and this is part of it. Like, I, I had never heard of Timur or the Timurid dynasty of modern-day Afghanistan and Iran, which is apparently where it's connected, but apparently a lot of Islamic academics over the years have covered this multiple times 
apparently Timur was supposed to, a lot of people saw him as the next Genghis Khan. Um, he was like related apparently, but just like, but then he, um, be, yeah, not... I wouldn't be at all surprised if he's actually well known in worlds that aren't <laughs> Eurocentric. Mm. I, 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 I think the fact that I don't know him is more a statement about me than about him. <laughs> and I only know him because I subscribed to Ted Ed. That's literally it. <laughs> That's yeah. the 10-minute clip I know about him. And I'd say my only interaction with the historical figure were a, brief, were a brief moment in time where I wanted to know about the Persians, which lasted for about a month, and I never picked up one of those books again. Oof. And so we have, we, so we have Tamburlaine, Cosro, Feridimus, they're taking their armies and they're knocking the shit out of my cities. And Cosro at that point, he basically says, ah, oh, thank you, Tamburlaine. Now you can be regent of this little area that I have here while I'll be the proper true king over here. And immediately, immediately Tamburlaine says, what a lovely thing to be a king. I think I'll take the kingship from that guy, and they go off and attack him. And that is Act 2, Scene 5, and the end. Oh, no, it's not at the end of Act 2. There's still Scene 6 and 7. I mean, there, yes, there is. I think we also get a hint of just how, like, Tamblaine and his, his friends, they don't, they have... Uh, so he says, and ride in triumph through Persepolis. Is it not brave to be a king, Tekeles, Usum Kazane, and Theridamas? Is it not a passing brave thing to be a king and ride in triumph through Persepolis? And then Theridamas says, a god is not so glorious as a king. I think the pleasure they enjoy in heaven cannot compare with kingly joys in earth, to wear a crown encased with pearl and gold, whose virtues carry with it life and death, to ask and have, command and be obeyed, when looks breed love, with looks to gain the prize, such power attractive shines in princes' eyes. We get over and over again the fact that these people, they are incredibly worldly. They cannot imagine that even in heaven, they cannot believe that even the afterlife has as much beauty as just being powerful on earth. It is, I, mean, I mean, it's one of those things where they have ambition, but also a very muddy-minded, vulgar ambition. Not going to lie. I had, I had very much, um, you know, Rose of the uh, Requiem. Requiem of Rose um, yeah. the, the crown is a circlet of heaven on earth. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's that kind of vibe happening right now. The crown, the crown tempts all who seek it. The Ring of Power. Sauron is watching you. <laughs> oh, but, on, but on that note, uh, Cos Cosro is shocked that this guy, Tamburlaine, is willing to kill him. He is shocked that Tamburlaine wasn't a good guy who just listened to him and be his regent. It's such a Pikachu meme, isn't it? It's a surprised Pikachu meme. It's yeah. like, oh, <laughs> Cosro goes, yeah, yeah, no, um, yeah, I'll, you, you can defeat a king for me. 
you won't defeat me, right? And then uh, Tamerlane's like, I'm going to defeat you. And Kostro's like, surprise, Pikachu. It's so... Kostro, you were meant to be the smart one. You dumb fuck. Act three. We've... Tamburlaine has defeated the first boss. He's defeated the tutorial boss of Mycetes. Now he's getting into the real shit. He's fighting a guy called Bajazeth. I think that's how it's pronounced. Bajazeth. Let me check. Yeah, that's how I read it. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's how I read it. <laughs> yeah, I, I read Bajazeth. In the Oxford reference of Shakespearean pronunciation, Bayazeth. Bayazets. Bayazets, I think that's it. So it's yeah. a y sound. So the So we have here, this is the first king who might be a serious threat for Tamblaine. But like the other kings, they sort of don't take him seriously enough. So I think I might have gotten these details wrong, but the Bayezets is currently sieging Constantinople, and he knows that Mycetes has been defeated, and he is going to. He thinks that Tamburlaine is just a diversion. He thinks he can just take him out as he's going to do other things. Yeah, my my note for scene one says some randos talk about Tamburlaine. Bayezet, King, kings of Fez, Morocco, and Adria, by the way. That's all I wrote. Yeah, most of these characters you, need, you don't need to know anything about. Bayezet is the only one who will be meaningful later on. And so It's like, oh, yep, another, another king underestimates him. And I, I'd oh, say that... But, and that's the thing, they don't even underestimate him. It's just he, he is estimated as he is worth, and he somehow still wins. Yeah, <laughs> he's certain. He is certainly he. Yeah, he has this. He only has great numbers. We can defeat him. He defeats them. Surprise, Pikachu. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that I, this this is quite this is famously a play set in the Middle East. And in this act, it is the first time we have any reference to Islam. I think where Bayezet says all oh, this is true as Holy Muhammad. And all the trees are blasted with our breaths. First time they mention Muhammad. Uh, first, I think later on he mentions the Al Quran. But up until this point, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not expecting that Marlowe would have a sense of Middle Eastern literature or Middle Eastern religion. There was an English translation of the Quran, but I don't think Marlowe can be expected to have read that thing. Um, but I would say that it is quite interesting, or at least expected, or ironic, that all of the characters in this play seem to have the reference base of a university-educated Englishman. Just a lot of Greek and Roman uh, mythology references, Julius Caesar, Hercules, that sort of things. And occasionally they mention Muhammad. Not going to lie, I was like, when they mentioned the Quran, um... The the way it's spelt in the text is like aku akuria aku aku what the fuck oh that's what yeah, they're so talking about oh a l c o r a n yeah I was like oh no what have I done 
am I going to go? I knew I was going to hell already, but am I going to go to two different kinds of hell now? Like what's going to happen? <laughs> what have I done? So let's move on to scene two. We get, we, here is where off screen, off stage, Xenocrity has fallen for Tamburlaine. She is in love with Tamburlaine. <laughs> Sophie, do you so. think this is equal to Romeo and Juliet? I refuse to believe it. <laughs> like she said, I mean, that we have her, her servant, Agadis or Agidas or something. He's basically just saying, how can you love him? He's, he's done terrible things to you. And he's saying, and also remember, you are engaged to another man. Think about him. And she's saying, thence rise the tears that so disdain my cheeks, fearing his love through my unworthiness. <laughs> she, she should have a higher opinion of herself. And certainly, Tamblaine does have a higher opinion of her. But again, um... again, it, it comes down to Tamblaine is a hottie. As looks the sun through Nihilus's flowing stream, or when the morning holds him in her arms, so looks my lordly love, fair Tamburlaine. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's, it's very much a, oh, I'm in love with him now because I have had much sex with a sexy man. Uh, but, then he d but then, you know, <laughs> she does say his talk, much sweeter than Muse's songs, they sung for honour against Pierides. Or when Minerva did with Neptune strive, and higher would I rear my estimate than Juno, sister to the highest god, if I were matched with mighty Tamburlaine. Yep, another example of Tamburlaine speaks pretty, trust me, because someone else said he did. I'd just like to actually point <laughs> out, you, you mentioned having sex with him. I, mean, I've, I, I just read that oh, line I, again. That, that is something assumed, because it, I, I don't think she ever actually, actually says that. But on the matter of sex, this is interesting because you know, Agadias, he does use uh, at the time what is an ambiguous word. He says, you're offensive rape by Tamburlaine. Now, rape, it, it could mean, you know, it, it, at the time, it could mean having sex without a woman's consent. But it also just means seizure. It means like kidnapping. You have been kidnapped by him. Like rapine. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's some uh, in the Cambridge Companion Although I do Marlo. think it's always um, quite sadly funny when we have to discuss, oh, don't worry, it's not rape. It's just kidnapping. Yes. I cert yes. I tell you they're all bad. One of them <laughs> would add badness to badness, though. I, I don't disagree. It's just it doesn't make him look good in any way. <laughs> ah, but, you know, my point is that I mean, you say that it's implied that he had sex with her. But I uh, was in the Cambridge Companion to Marlowe in their essay, I forget who the writer was, but in their essay on Tamburlaine, they do mention that the way he describes her at the start, uh, the way that Tamburlaine describes Xenocrates, he keeps on using the, oh, you're so chaste. Oh, you're icy. Oh, you're like a pure, undriven snow. You're so high above me. You're ice and all these words that seem to push against there being any sex involved here. It's yeah, like he just it, wants her as a collector's item. Th then he does say to be my queen and portly empress, though. <laughs> I mean, even there, it doesn't... See, I mean, I'd say that... I mean, I'd say that part of this interpretation comes from people reading an assumed homosexuality of Marlowe into this. 
or that he has some thoughts that go towards homosexuality, where they're saying that, oh, yes, Tam Blaine, strong, virile, powerful. Uh, when it comes to a woman, he'll treat this woman as an idol, as a thing to, to put on a throne, but not to actually have sex with. Uh, <laughs> I'd say that might be informing the interpretation. But I'd say that it's open to debate whether or not he actually wants this woman physically. And this is one of those things where I'm like, I'm going to assume the most common usage and meanings, unless there is some reason not to. Tamburlaine goes to her and takes her away lovingly by the hand, looking wrathfully on Agidas and says nothing. That is a quite a, a thing to do with you. I'd say Edward Allen needs to be quite a good actor to, ha to have his hand be loving, but his eyes be wrathful at the same time. Yeah, and uh, the, the Agadez, or Agadez, whatever, is going, oh no, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? And then the friends come along and say, hey boy. Uh, Here is his message, a knife. Tamberlane says hi with a knife. And I'm like, all right, fine, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and just stabs himself in the stomach and dies. And um, the friends of Tamberlane are like, he's such a good boy for doing that of his own volition. We would have done so much worse. I'm like, okay. Let us afford him now the bearing hence and crave his triple worthy burial. So at least there's that. I mean, if they, if someone got you to kill yourself, Sophie, wouldn't you like a lovely funeral? Such a, I mean, personally, I would have rather not have stabbed myself in the stomach in the first place. Just. <laughs> Maybe ask for a swift death and maybe my um some money sent back to my family as, and as an apology note for being a dumb fuck. But um Yeah, no, that's I much killing your stabbing your stomach is one of the most painful ways Way to, to die. Yeah. It's, it's no, I, I would rather much be beheaded. Just just a quick quick guillotine, please. Where does it say he stabs himself in the stomach? I'm pretty sure that's what I'm pretty sure that's what he does. Um, Maybe you're just so Japanese that uh, you you immediately think if you kill yourself with a knife, you have to do it Harakiri style. <laughs> I mean, that is entirely possible, to be honest. Wait, I thought the stomach too, but I I don't actually read anything that actually says the stomach. Yes, maybe you're right. And with this step, slumber eternally stabs himself. Yeah. That's all it says. himself in the face? No, the only way, the only possible way that you really stab yourself. Okay, I suppose you could go for the neck. And should we move on to the next, to the battle, the big battle, the big battle, which do you want to take a guess on whether we see it or not? We do not. So Tamberlane and Bayazet's fighting each other off screen. And what is, as I was saying before, in these plays, it's quite meaningful the kind of pop for whole, the synecdoche that we see of the battle. In this one, we get Xenocrate and Zabina. So Zabina, the wife of Bayazet's, they're having essentially whose husband is stronger. Oh, no, my man is stronger than your man. My man is stronger than your man. And Zabina that's all the battle refuses to even see her as wife. Oh, yes, yeah, she's not wife yet. 
Ooh, you concubine. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my note says um, they are basically having a rap battle. <laughs> the battle is won, gloating ensues. Nice. And Zabina says, Zabina says to Xenocrity, thou shalt be laundress to my waiting maid. It is, and you know, the way that they're talking to each other, like Xenocrity, hearst thou, Anipe, how thy drudge doth talk, and how my slave, her mistress, menaceth, both for their sauciness shall be employed to dress the common soldiers, meat and drink, for we will scorn they should come near ourselves. And we get the sense that Xenocrity, she is actually quite liking the amount of power she gets from being Tamburlaine's uh, concubine or wife or fiance. She is, she is becoming crueler as this goes along because of being allied to uh, Tamburlaine. Yeah, but let's not mistake this for a character arc because she, she jumps from like character to character with no, no explanation as to why other than time has passed. Time has I'd, passed, and now I'm this character. <laughs> I'd say that when I'd say that part of loving Tamburlaine means liking the level of power that he has, and part of loving power is also liking the arbitrary use of power. And later on, I'd say that her sort of change of heart again is quite reasonable, in that, you know, Tamburlaine is using his strong power against her own people. So that's why her change later on is justified. I, 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 I am more forgiving of her psychology, perhaps. I mean, Marlowe's writing of her psychology. Tamblaine is victorious and he takes Bayezest and Zabina prisoner. Act four. As you said, Craig, it's basically... <laughs> Act three repeated. I'd say that the only difference here is that just like act three, because I'd say that, that every time it's sort of like a controlled experiment. One thing changes every time. The first act, we have a powerful king, but he's also effeminate. And he doesn't think that um, uh, Tamburlaine is much of a threat. That's the fight. The next one, we have Bayezus, who is a capable king, who is very powerful and doesn't think Tamburlaine is much of a threat. In this one, we have a capable king who doesn't think Tamburlaine is much of a threat, but he does really hate Tamburlaine for taking his daughter. So this is the king, the sultan of Egypt. He hates Tamburlaine. And so even though he doesn't view Tamburlaine as a threat, he is motivated to bring all of his forces to kill Tamburlaine. So every time one thing changes to up the stakes. Yeah, um, so for my notes on Act 4, Scene 1, Egyptian King, let him come! Messenger, wait, but no, please, no! Yeah, it's like, if you don't go over there, go over to his camp, and if you don't come back in four days, then we'll go and fight him. Which is, essentially you're saying, go over there, and if you die, I mean, we're going to do something. This, this Sultan of Egypt is Xenocrates' father. He doesn't know that his own daughter has, you know, switched sides. He doesn't know that his daughter really likes the guy who he wants to kill. I wonder if that would have changed anything. I wonder if, if he knew that his daughter was in love with Tamblaine, if he'd make an allyship. Later on, after he's conquered, he does. I won't say that it's a willing allyship. But 
Uh, but essentially, Tam gives an ultimatum. Pleaseth your mightiness to understand his resolution far exceedeth all. The first day when he pitcheth down his tents, white is their hue, and on his silver crest a snowy feather spangled white he bears, to signify the mildness of his mind, that satiate with spoil refuseth blood. But when Aurora mounts the second time, as red as scarlet is his furniture, then must his kindled wrath be quenched with blood, not sparing any that can manage arms. Now, this is a standard. If you don't surrender now, I'm going to kill you all. I'd say that still at this point, still at this early point, I at least, I mean, yes, he is an awful person. Just like when you watch a gangster movie, you know these are awful people. But at an early point in these things, you're sort of taken up by, you think, oh, they're not that bad. Oh, they're not, they're, they're, they're very powerful, very romantic, very sexy. But they're Just not that bad. three quarters of the way through the play. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'd say that late, I mean, in this act, he's going to do some truly terrible things. Um, and this is where I feel that at least the audience starts to wake up from going along with this gangster character. Accepting but, the premise, I do not accept that we are supposed to like Tamburlaine at the beginning. Yes, yes, you, you could not like Tamburlaine after this act. He is, he is shown to be, uh, yeah, in this act of saying, surrender now or I'll kill you, there is some level of kindness, some level of compromise, some level of, I'm going to take you, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. Later on, he, he is shown to be a really sadistic kind of person. Any comments about this early part of Act 4? Um, I do want to say for scene two, the, I have written, base villain, vassal, slave to Tamburlaine, has, uh, sweetie, honey, baby vibes. Oh, you sweet summer child. Oh, base villain, vassal, slave to Tamburlaine, unworthy and to embrace or touch the ground that bears the honour of my royal weight. Stoop, villain, stoop. Stoop, for so he bids that may command thee piecemeal to be torn or scattered like the lofty cedar trees struck with the voice of thundering Jupiter. And I was like, oh my God, sir. Yes, no, just don't get on you, please. I don't want to contextualize this. So, Bayezeth, he's been defeated in war. Now, Bayezeth is a prisoner of Tamburlaine. And Tamblin's really just sort of say, I'm going to use you as my footstool. I'm going to use you and your wife as slaves. He is really just intent on humiliating these two. I will step on you. I'm, I, will, I am your daddy and I will step on you. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> I, it's like the Matrix scene where the Merovingian is in the BDSM club. But in this scene, we have, I at least feel that, oh, this is the height of his evil. He is just a sadistic guy taking pleasure in hurting these people. So, Greg, you don't take this. You don't take this argument. I do. No, I'm happy for you to make this argument. And as I said, if we agree with your premise, then I, I agree that this is the, this is the turning point. And I, I doubt there is anyone who still cheers him on after this. 
and Xenocrate is saying she is my handmaid slave about Zabina. So she has followed through on her threat that she would make her not merely a slave, but a slave of a slave. So again, Xenocrate, I believe, is sort of going along with uh, Tamblaine. So it's not merely that she is a reluctant or even just in love with Tamblaine. She is taking pleasure in the power he has. Uh, he does. He's trying to humiliate Bayezeth, but he can never, like throughout the play, just using his words or just by killing people, he manages to break down people or bring them over to his side. He never manages to break Bayezeth or his wife. They both just seem to retain that, no, we hate you. We're never going, you can't break us. They do seem, this, these, they seem to be the first thing that he cannot fully conquer. The spite of nobility scorned. I'm trying to develop some discussion about this act because not much happens here. It is yeah. mainly just a setup for Act 5. Yeah, um, my notes for Scene 3 is more people talking about fucking up Tamburlaine. Scene 4, banquet in which the lackeys are crowned. Like, that's basically it. I'm right, sure... The main thing that happens here is that Xenocrates does say, is, this is where she does say, oh, please, honey, please, please don't destroy my homeland. Don't kill my father. Please be kind. And Tamburlaine is saying, no, I, I promise and I will, but... He's sort of saying that I am bound by my own words. I am, my words are fate and I must follow my fate. Yeah, no, I, I was tempted to write Lolna or um, that, but I was like, that's, that's bad. That's cruel. I won't. Bayezith is probably the most eloquent character in this whole play. At least the one that has the most emotion behind him so so okay so the most complete characters in this play i would say is mycetes because you know he's effeminate he's he's a coward like he has you know a beginning a middle and an end tambaline in that you know um he's like oh yes i am so handsome so cool and i'm gonna be king and he does become king and what he he seemed to be affable and kind of you know goofy until at the very end he's like oh yeah I'm a devil incarnate and then you have Bayezid, um who's like fucking of course underestimates um, Tamburlaine and but you know he maintains a righteous fury and a nobility that cannot be broken um, and is probably the yeah as I say the most eloquent character and complete character that we have in this play. Act five. So we begin act five in, we, we discussed this scene before where uh, we have the governor of Damascus pulling out some young virgins, four virgins, and basically just saying, look, you stand out here and hopefully Tamburlaine will feel so sorry for you. He stops. And these, these virgins, they are explicitly unwilling to do this. They, don't, they, they haven't volunteered to be sacrificed. They are saying, no, no, I don't want to do this. Uh, says, if humble suits or imprecations uttered with tears of wretchedness and blood shed from the heads and hearts of all our sex, some made your wives and some your children, might have entreated your obdurate breast to entertain some care of our securities. 
whilst only danger beat upon our walls, these more than dangerous warrants of our death had never been erected as they be, nor you depend on such weak helps as we. So basically you're saying, no, no, look, so far nothing has helped. Why are you sacrificing us? And yes, so, and then Tam, well, no, this is what happens next. Tamberlane says, sorry, I, you can't stop me. I kill them, he says to his men, take them off stage, kill them, and then they hoist up their dead bodies into Damascus. I mean, even I mean, even you, Greg, who thinks that he is presented as being a monster from the beginning, there is at least an escalation in his monstrosity. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh -huh. uh, he he does and have a lovely line when he's talking to them. It's like Tamburlaine says, "Virgins, in vain ye labour to prevent that which mine honour swears shall be performed. Behold my sword! What see you at the point?" And the virgins say. Nothing but fear and fatal steel, my lord. And Tamblaine says, Your fearful minds are thick and misty then, for there sits death. There sits imperious death, keeping his circuit by the slicing edge. So it is. He doesn't need to mock them like this, but he does. He is, I mean, he is, as a villain, he is quite good, isn't he? He works better as a villain. Uh, I get where he is coming from. He's like, Oh, it is my honor. Um, in that, you know, he's already created a reputation. If you, when the tents are white, he will spare you so long as you give him, give him the, you know, the correct tribute and the correct, um, procedure to let, you know, let go of your city. Um, but once his tents are red and once he is wearing his black armor, you're done. You're dead. There's no turning back. And the mayor of Damascus had sent out the virgins after the tents had turned red. He was already in his black armor and the virgins like, please, no. And he's like, no, man, I gotta, this is my reputation at stake. Um, and um, it's a very pirate way of doing it as well. Um, there's a CGP Grey 2 videos about pirates and the pirates, pirate life from the captain's point of view is that, you know, um, you raise your flag, you attack the ship, and you, can, you give them two choices. You either let them go, or if they fight, you fight them to the point where they will never turn against you ever again. You leave one survivor so they can tell their friends just how brutal the murder was and then you just keep building your reputation like that. We don't want to lose um, soldiers by by killing people because it's it's just it's a it's a chore. It's a chore. It's a nuisance. So yeah, build a reputation. Hopefully, people will just fucking lie down and let you take the gold off them, and we and we scuttle off. It's fine. Um, so in that sense, very similar philosophy of stake your reputation on your bloodthirstiness and if they you know just fall and give you their cash cool if they don't you you carry on that reputation of absolute destruction and um sorry virgins but yeah the the mayor knew the situation he fucked up and i but you know so they just he could have just like fucking give them an, a, a quick death and not put their bodies on the goddamn wall that was so unnecessary 
Uh, I, Tambler? Mr. Tambler, I think that was just a bit excessive. A bit of, what are you doing? Stop killing me. You've already killed me. Why do you have to put my body on the wall as well? Come on. But now to another element of cruelty, of the cruelty of this play. I do remember that um, there was some... Find the quote. There was... Ah, so A.C. Bradley, who was quite a famous Shakespearean scholar of the late 19th century, he said the two parts of Tamburlaine are not great tragedies. They are full of mere horror and glare. Of the essence of drama, a sustained and developed action, there is as yet very little. And what action there is proceeds almost entirely from the rising passion of a single character. Uh, yes, it, it is rather full, as he says, full of mere horror and glare. So we start with killing virgins, innocent virgins, unwilling sacrifices, hoisting up their corpses, and then in the next scene, we have Bayezeth and Zabina saying, I will escape your, your imprisonment, um, uh, Tamburlaine, by killing ourselves. And he, he, when his wife is outside the room, the stage direction himself against the cage. There is no way to make that sound. I mean, it, and, then, and then his own wife, she comes and says, oh no, oh no. She runs against the cage and brains herself. I, I mean, the, the first one, I mean, this may just be me, but the first braining of the self, that perhaps can be done with a level of uh, tragedy, a level of utter, you are shocked by the savagery. But having another person immediately afterwards come and do the same thing, it starts to feel a bit ridiculous. I didn't mind if that was the way they killed themselves. I will, uh, on the side of tired. Like, I won't go so far as to say ridiculous, because, um, you know, they are very explicitly not given anything that could potentially allow them to um, cause harm to themselves or to others. Man's in the fucking cage. What else can he do except just bang his head against the bars hard enough that fucking he's gone. He's gone. Um, so if have, having the wife come along and go, oh, no, that's how he did himself in. I will follow my husband. Exactly. And also, at least, like, from her, she has a corner. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a very dark and practical part of my brain, but you know. Next brain. on the Shakespeare podcast, why having being outside the cage makes it easier to commit suicide. I mean, yeah, like she has, like she has for first of all, like a runway. She can like <laughs> move back and run and like sort of like jump and really aim her head into a corner and it'd be one shot one shot um insert eminem or um just run fucking rap music about one shot da, 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 da. Uh, once in a lifetime <sighs> anyway and so at least it'll be like a clean 
it won't be clean. There'll be brains everywhere, but it'd be a neat shot. Just, just one shot to kill yourself with. Like, so yeah, <laughs> imagining that <laughs> is, is quite funny. It's quite ridiculous as a way to, you know, off yourself. So like on a philosophical level, like, very apt. It's, you know, I will go the same way as my husband. I will drink the same poison. I will use, I will plunge the same knife. I will use the same cage, you know. Um, I will feel my husband's pain, but also just... <laughs> but I'm so yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe it is quite ridiculous. <laughs> Mm. yes and then Xenocrity comes in and sees the dead bodies she sees the dead bodies but see another bloody spectacle our wretched eyes the enemies of my heart how are ye glutted with these grievous objects and tell my soul more tales of bleeding Ruth God I didn't know that my husband was a monster it's one of the, well, he, I, he say... became my husband as he was my as I was his slave, but I didn't know he was a monster. <laughs> it's one of the, no, it's one of those things where you can sort of take pleasure in the deaths of people you don't know. But now it's like she's seen him killing the people of her own country, and now she sees actual dead bodies in front of her, and it means so much more to her now. Yeah, just like I would find it genuinely horrifying if a person ran and jumped and smacked their head on the side of a cage to kill themselves. Would be horrifying, but imagining it in theory is quite funny. I mean, you're saying, Greg, that you view her change of heart as being quite sudden. I mean, I, at least to me, well, I find. Well, well, this is the most realistic because you, you can make that. Again, it can almost work if you're willing to make assumptions to make it work, like the assumption that maybe this is actually only the first time she's seen what her husband does for a living. I mean, it's not that she, this is the first time she's seen what her husband does for a living. It's more that when they are out, when it's like on a battlefield, you're standing on the sidelines. It's just, oh, it's a war. It's a battle. Oh, those little ants out there are getting killed. How lovely. But now, she, and also you don't know any of the people getting killed. Whereas now it's in the context of her own homeland being slaughtered and killed. And you, she now knows, oh, I know these people. These are people I am like. He is killing them. And now the fact of death around her means so much more to her. Yeah, yeah, there is a little bit more here than there is in anywhere else. Um, but again, like, yeah, it's just, it's happened. She's changed. It's not we get to see her change here. It's not that she walks in and this is when she realizes. She walks in already saying, oh, I have realized things are bad. Oh, look, here is another example of how things are bad. So we never actually see her change of heart. That, that like we've talked about the battles, even the change of hearts occur off, off stage. Any, any sense of character arc is not happening on stage in this play. I think that we don't particularly need to see the travel point between the traveling path between two points. 
I think just having her come in and say, wretched Xenocrates that lives to see Damascus walls die with Egyptian blood, thy father's subjects and thy countrymen, thy streets strew with the service joints of men and wounded bodies gasping yet for life. I think that that is enough to tell you the journey she has taken and frankly tells you enough. No, I, I think, you know, again, with the great monologues of Shakespeare, the, the, the monologues start with a character at one point and end with the character at another. Whereas we're always at the end point of the characters, if there's going to be a change. We never see, uh, for a play full of really descriptive, sometimes quite beautiful monologues, we never have a character at the beginning of the monologue be different to the character at the end. I mean, I at least would say that that is an aspect of Shakespeare. There was someone who was saying about Shakespeare that he catches thoughts in action. He dramatizes thoughts in action or something like yeah. that. I'd say that at least that is an aspect of Shakespeare's style, which I don't think is always helpful when we are judging other writers. Except for to say that he's better than them. I would say that showing <laughs> I would say that showing I mean there's that what is that the iceberg theory show some I mean actually you know just to show a bit and the reader can assume the rest I say that I don't particularly need to see the progression I can sh be shown the start point and the end point and I can fill in the in between but, but I don't but, think this is a failure of but, writing but that, that's like saying um this play lets you know that there was a Tamburlaine. You can, you can work out the rest that would make the good story. I'd say that being <laughs> shown him, that being shown him at the beginning of the battle and then having him stepping on the, the defeated body of the enemy king, I'd say that that is, in a way, a, a good way of showing the story. I would, I would honestly say Act 5 is the only time where I feel this is a play. In what sense? <laughs> it, it, there, there are things happening in Act 5. In what it, sense different from the previous ones? The, the previous acts. Nothing yeah. happens in the acts. People talk about, oh, something might be about to happen or something has happened. But only in Act 5 do things actually happen. On that basis, then we can get rid of all of ancient Greek tragedy. No, I disagree. The, the messenger's I, I, coming I, I up would... and saying that he's torn his eyes out. Oh, I never saw that. Except for that, that, that is one small example. In uh, most things that are on the stage in ancient Greek plays are happening on the stage. And that's what's quite impressive about some of the things um, that they do then. I'm not saying everything has to happen on the stage. Definitely not. But something has to happen on the stage. And in this play, the only time something happens is in Act 5. Hmm. I mean, okay, I kind of agree and I don't agree in that. Like, um, So I would say a lot, a similar amount of stuff is happening in Act 3, Scene 3, when, you know, when Tamburlaine um, bears it, uh, Zeno... Zeno and um, Belly, fuck, what I can't remember her name. Um, where they're having a conversation when he, when the two men are like, ah, yes, my wife, 
or fiance or concubine is the most beautiful and I'm going to win you the city and, you know, and we're going to just go duel over you and your prosperity for the rest of our lives. And then they leave and they to fight and the women are like having a rap battle of their own. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, you are right. That scene has elements of action to it. Yeah, you don't need the the literal fight to occur for that to feel like events are happening. Yeah, but like I do agree also that at least every it feels at least for act 1 and act 2, they overall feel like scenes. It should be So it's not act 1 with scenes 1 2 3. Act 1 should just be a single scene. Act 2 Okay, Act 2 has, like, five scenes in it. But, you know, scenes one, two, three could have been, like, the same scene where Cosro, Minophon, or Tegeus basically, you know, talk amongst themselves. And then in scene two, Mycetes and Cosro's being a whiny boy. And, um, like, fucking... There isn't much back and forth. It's a lot of um, single groups agreeing with each other that this should happen and then it happens. There's no back and forth. There's no conflict that they act on scene, that act on stage. I think that's a much better way of putting it. There's there's no conflict in so much of the... Yes, I, I would agree that there's no particular conflict in this. I well, would like, say that there's conflict in the overall story. It's just never happening on stage. Whereas it does, yeah, between the ladies in Act Three, it, the the con there is conflict on stage, even between Tamburlaine and the King before they get into their thing. And there's conflict in Act Five, but so much else of it is, yeah, not. <laughs> Scene one, oh yes, Tamburlaine is bad. Yes, Tamburlaine is bad. Let us go. Scene two, oh yes, my CTs right. is bad. Yes, my CTs is bad. Let us go. And it's it's when the meat, um, the first scene that is actually interesting is um, in when the meat cute happens, when Tamburlaine and my CTs have their little like back and forth with the crown. And my CT is like, oh no, oh no, that was Tamburlaine. Oh my, my die. And he dies. And, but, yeah, that was a really interesting scene where, you know, there was back and forth. There was not just blind agreement between all the characters on scene. So in that sense, uh, you know, scene five has the most, scene five of, scene one, fuck, of act five has the most back and forth of pushback of characters going, ah, shit, I agree. But also maybe not so shit. That's yeah, and, and act five contains, you know, all its battles off stage and it isn't at all problematic doing such a thing it doesn't it doesn't sit as badly and now we have you know defeats xenocrates's father he defeats the sultan of egypt and takes egypt and in an act of tremendous magnanimity and kindness he lets the sultan live uh i i that was a that was a move that i was not happy or the Sultan, considering the last king that was let alive by Tamburlaine decided to basically brain himself in a cage. It was like, oh no, Sultan, you're gonna end up in the next cage. 
They might not even clean the cage for you. I think at least for his wife's sake, he won't, uh, um, he won't treat him that badly. And I given that he's know. already started groveling before him, saying, Mighty, so the Sultan says, Mighty hath God and Muhammad made thy hand renowned in Tamburlaine, to whom all kings of force must yield their crowns and emperies. I mean, Xenocrate did say, Hey, Tamburlaine, can you, like, not kill all of the people I love? And he was like, mm, I don't think I can. I'm sorry. Like, my code or whatever. So... Yeah, even if she's even if she did go, hey, can you not like not put my dad in a cage? And he he might go, mm, I can put him in a bigger cage, but <laughs> no, I don't. I have I do not have high hopes for this man's living conditions. On the point, Greg, of your saying that there were no monologues where a character starts somewhere and ends somewhere different, I find at least there is at least one that I think I found. It's, you know, so he's, he begins by saying, it doesn't matter what you say, Xenocrates. It doesn't matter if you tell me not to kill them all. I will still be an awful human being and kill them all. But there's one monologue, so he's starting there, but one monologue where he's saying, ah, fair Xenocrates, divine Xenocrates, fair is too foul an epithet for thee, that in thy passion of thy country's love and fear to see thy kingly father's harms, with hair disheveled, wipes thy watery cheeks and like to Flora in her morning's pride, shaking her silver tresses in the air, brainstorm on the earth, resolved pearl and shell, yada, yada, yada. So he's talking about how much he loves her. Um, so their, angel, their angels in their crystal armors fight a doubtful battle with my tempted thoughts for Egypt's freedom and the Sultan's life, his life that so consumes Xenocrates, whose sorrows lay more siege unto my soul than all my army to Damascus walls. So here he's already conflicted that he's saying, no, I want to take this place. I want to take it, but oh, I love my, my wife, um, Xenocrates. And then he's saying, then he goes down. So my niche, uh, he says, yet should there hover in their restless heads one thought, one grace, one wonder at the least, which into words no virtue can digest, but how unseemly is it for my sex, my discipline of arms and chivalry, my nature and the terror of my name to harbor thoughts effeminate and faint? So he's thinking, no, no, I mustn't be thinking of love like this. I mustn't be thinking of backing away from this warlike beat down the Egyptians. But then he says, save only that in beauty's just applause, with whose instinct the soul of man is touched, and every warrior that is wrapped with love of fame or valor or victory must needs have beauty beat on his conceits, I thus conceiving and subduing both that which hath stopped the tempest of the gods, even from the fiery spangled veil of heaven, to feel the lovely warmth of shepherds' flames and marching cottages' strewn weeds, shall give the world to note for all my birth that virtue solely is the sum of glory, that virtue solely is the sum of glory, and fashions men with true nobility. So I feel that at least in this monologue, he starts yeah. saying, no, I must destroy it, then he goes on to say, oh, but I love my Xenocrity. Oh, but I must be a man and fight them. Ah, but even a warrior can love beauty and virtue. Is it I the only that... soliloquy? I think, I it, think might it might be. be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it does stand out. I think you're correct. So even this Shakespeare got from him. We can all say it goes all the way back <laughs> to Marlowe. <laughs> Yes, 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 I'm, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Act 5 really oft. I, I, I don't know, but there's part of me going, mm, was Act 5 added later by someone else? <laughs> may, may, maybe Act 5 is the only work by Marlowe? Uh, 
Because it is, Act 5 is so different from the rest of the play in how it's written, how it's structured, how the characters interact. It's almost, it's like, though, I'd say maybe it's not a sign of a different writer or you, it's more the sort of thing, oh, I need to wrap this up now. You'll notice it's in a lot of works where, you know, it's going along quite nice and the writer realizes, oh, yes, we need structure. We need things to end. How do I end this? It, it, it's improved by someone actually giving themselves limitations. And so he's uh, taken them prison. And I'd say this ends, again, this sort of goes into the weird structure of this. It is this, because it ends with, you know, the, the Sultan saying, I, I surrender. Yes, I'm happy that you have overthrown me. And then Tamburlaine says, ends with him looking at Zenocrity and speaking to her. Thy first betrothed love, Arabia, shall we with honor as beseems in tomb with this great Turk and his fair empress. Thereafter, all these solemn exequies, we will our celebrated rites of marriage solemnize. So this play ends like a comedy. It, is a co it has a happy ending. It ends in a marriage. And, you know, this is a character saying, I dare the gods, I dare the fates. So much hubris, you think, ah, he's going to die. No, it is literally ends like a comedy. Yeah. And it's sort of like a pastoral comedy because he is a shepherd. He begins as a shepherd and he marries the woman he loves at the end. In a lot of ways, I feel this is like... It's like a reverse morality tale. Here's a person who does all the bad things and he gets to do worse and worse things and then he gets a happy ending. Yeah. Morality! I, I remember that, you know, I, I was talking about Robert Greene and how he decided to do his own version of this play. And he also did his own version of uh, Dr. Faustus. But in the article that I was getting this from, by from the Cambridge Companion by... Uh, James P. Bednars in Marlowe and the English Literary Scene, it does seem that Robert Greene, when he was doing his versions, he wanted to make them morally acceptable. Well, I was wondering <laughs> that, if that might be why part two was written. We talk about the reasons why part two was written. Was this because Marlowe got in trouble for it not? For, for the way it ended, Marlowe got in trouble for it because uh, part two opens with the death of the wife. It's uh, I'd say that might be the reason. Also, there's that reason of what do you do with a sequel? Do you just make it bigger than the last one, or do you just change entirely what it is? That could be, that could be true, too. It could be, uh, what do we do here? I know, we fridge the woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fridge the woman before the fridge even is invented. Yay! That was... Tamburlaine, part one by Christopher Marlowe. So, Greg, is this a masterpiece or a great masterpiece? Uh, this has elements that show Marlowe can write and a lot of evidence that Marlowe can't tell stories. Let's say that uh, I think the, before <laughs> this, his main works were I think it was lit one of them was literally just an adaptation of the Dido Aeneas scenes from the Aeneid. So I, I'd say that the... Maybe the he should just stick to adaptations. Maybe that's what we're learning here, is that he shouldn't try to be original. Yes, history, It's when he's adapting history, there's not much... I, it's possible just to make history one damn thing after another, as it is in this one. So, Sophie, do you think this is a masterpiece or a feminist masterpiece? <laughs> it's a piece. 
I'll give it that. <laughs> let us let let's just say uh, the way we do this is at the end we go around the table, we go around the panel, and each of us says one thing that we liked, one thing we didn't like. Let's say, one? Greg, what's one thing you liked about this? Uh, if if I only have one, I'd have to say there are some great turns of phrase, like. If you took out all the great quotes from this play and compared to them compared them to the number of great quotes in a random Shakespeare play, I reckon you'd come to a similar number of quotes. So that that's my one like. Sophie? Uh I will say I did like Bayezith, the character. Like, he probably has the most fiery of lines um, in the in the play in general. Um, and I did like the characters that actually did have some character, like my CTs. And it's not a good character, but still character. And in that, and I will put Tamburlaine at the bottom. Yes, um, there was a... <laughs> There was a thing, like we're talking about how little character there is in this. There's a thing in Borges where he's talking about the difference between Shakespeare and Marlowe is that in Shakespeare you think of a crowd of characters. In Marlowe, there's one character in a hall of mirrors. Like the only reason any of the other characters exist is to just give the main character either contrast to show his character or an opportunity to do things that show his character. The other characters may as well just be cardboard cutouts for that for that reason. So that's why perhaps there are so few memorable characters in this. And for me, I will say that I do like that this this is essentially, I mean, perhaps against all laws of dramatic conflict and or morality, this is just the story of a rather awful gangster rising up, coming to power, and never getting his comeuppance. He just gets the, the the archetypal happy ending. I do like that, that it is just so, I, get, I, I made the comparison before. This is just like the talented Mr. Ripley. A guy does awful things. He has pleasure doing it. And then he gets away with it. And if you don't read the next play, we can pretend he always gets away with it. And should we ever do the next play? No. I would like to not. Uh, I have heard that it is worse. Mm. But now, bad things. What's one bad... I'd, let's limit ourselves <laughs> to one or two bad things, Greg. Ooh. Okay, I'll try and think. What would be the worst thing that I hate about this play? Yeah, it would have to be the complete lack of threat to the tambourine. That, that would probably be the one that stands out the most. Is that at no point does Tamburlaine face a struggle or a conflict or anything that slows down his movement until that very last act with that soliloquy, which I'm glad you pointed out. Until that moment, there is nothing. Anyway, Sophie, what's one bad thing you found? One bad thing? One. Okay, two. <laughs> okay. Um, 
bad thing, one, mostly is Tamberlane, the concept, the character, because as um, like the Rick myth, says, the legend, the myth, the legend, the concept, um, because fucking. As Greg says, like he he faces no real hardship. He just keeps climbing, um, and because in order to allow that to happen, every enemy he faces is a dumb brick of a human being, and that's like fuck. And because it's it's to prop up the concept of Tamburlaine, the unstoppable. So yeah, it's bad, and um. The play itself, it, the way it is structured, is bad as well. Because um, the acts and scenes are so short, which I was very happy to to like read. But because of their shortness and how perfunctory they are, like it's it has no substance. Um, and um, because everything happens, everything important happens off stage. The exciting parts, like why am I? Why am I here? Watching Tamblaine be awesome in the most boring way imaginable. And um, it's almost like they added the cruelty at the end to spice up the boringness. It's like, oh yeah, I know you're bored because he's he's just winning all the time and it's boring. And but like, so let's let's make him cruel. Let's make things interesting. And it's like it's not. It's it's not. It's really not. I see my I mean, on this point of talking about how bad it is, uh, there's a lovely quote by a guy in 1885 called A.H. Bullen, and he's saying, it is difficult to overestimate the importance of Tamburlaine in the history of English drama. To appreciate how immensely Marlowe outdistanced at one bound all his predecessors, the reader must summon courage to make himself acquainted with such productions as Gorboduk, The Misfortunes of Arthur, and Sir Clemonon and Sir Clamides. He will then perceive how real is Marlowe's claim to be regarded as the father of English drama. So maybe that's our problem. We yeah, are we're yeah. spoiled. We have I, too I'm much happy stuff. to accept that perhaps if we went back and read even worse works, we would not hate Marlowe so much. But that's not going to happen. I'm going to put my foot down right now and say that's not going to happen. This is the worst play we read in the podcast, or I am not reading the plays anymore. <laughs> I will say that perhaps we could do things that are perhaps not, perhaps maybe worth, but definitely interesting. Give, give, give me plays that challenge my notion that Shakespeare was the best at the time. Stop giving me plays that make Shakespeare look even better. What about John Webster? Look, I didn't actually mind. What was the one we did about the woman? Duchess of Malfi. Yeah, I didn't mind Duchess of Malfi. I thought that stood up there as equal to Shakespeare. Too long, but otherwise, I didn't mind her. And it, it's it certainly sat with me as a play, which I always think is a good sign. But yes, please, give me something that makes me go, oh, well, why do we remember Shakespeare better than this person? I'd say that, you know, for the purposes of this podcast, maybe we'll go for quality. Sometimes we'll just go for interestingness. And, you know, if maybe, maybe, Greg, sometimes you can take these ones off. Me and Sophie. <laughs> and... Yes, you can punish yourselves. Oh, oh, why did you, why have you abandoned me, Greg? 
And to Greg. Hopefully, right when Greg is away, maybe we can do um, the Requiem of the Rose King. <laughs> okay, and we can also that. do Romeo X Juliet. Romeo and Juliet in space with Mecca. What? Remember that one? That Remember that anime? You'll have to do Romeo Must Die, the incredible mm -hmm. action comedy with Jet Li and Alaya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that a, a of utter excitement? Uh, it's just a series of question marks. It's just a series of question marks and a lot of fonts, a lot of colours, a lot of italics. I don't know what's happening. When it comes to what I like, about what I don't like. When it comes to what I don't like about this play, I will say that one of the things, oh, this is just my taste, um, but I am going, and when I state my taste, I'm going to try to make sure they in no way overlap with Greg's tastes. That uh -huh. is going to be the main, that is going to be what gives this podcast some flavor. The fact that you and me, Greg, we, we agree on nothing. That is going to I be. I think it. that works perfectly, yes. <laughs> So like I like in Shakespeare how there are just pointless characters everywhere, characters who don't seem to have any purpose to the plot. I like how there is just so much variety in everything that's happening. Maybe he could have made it a better play by cutting out 30%, 50%, 70% of the characters. But every character is distinct. Every character is almost Dickensian. Maybe they're cardboard cutouts, but they have a level of life to them. In this play, there are a lot of characters, but most of them are exactly the same. Some this is the, what you like about the play, yeah? This is, we're, got, we're down to what we don't like. This is a don't like section. Ah. Yeah, so in this play, all the characters are, there are three, in this play, I would say there are three character types. No, four character types. One of them is Tamblaine, one of them is Xenocrates, one of them is Mycetes, and then there's everyone else. Everyone else is sort of a gruff, I will. I I hate Tamblaine. I'm going to stop him. But then they don't. That is all the other characters in this play. I wish there was some more variety there. <laughs> That's true. Even if there was the same number of characters who had nothing to the plot, I want there to be more variety there. That was Tamblaine Part One by Christopher Marlowe. And next time we will be doing. Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Are you looking forward to that? Are you regretting doing a podcast where we go through Shakespeare's works in chronological order? Regret allowing all the other plays to be in it. I've forgotten what Henry the Sixth, Part Two was. I'm going to have to read a summary of it before entering Part Three. <laughs> that was. Episode 6 of Shakespeare and Pound. Sources are in the episode description. The music opening and ending this podcast comes from Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen. It is a public domain recording taken from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.